Welcome back to the Morgan Stanley Ideas podcast. I'm Ashley Milne-Tite. Today on the show, we're doing something a little different. Instead of answering a question, we're going to dive deep into a single topic. But before I tell you what that topic is, there's a story I want you to hear. A few years ago, I went in front of a board on a particular issue where I was absolutely convinced that there was a right answer and there was one board member in particular that was coming out the opposite way. This is Rob Kindler, a vice chairman and global head of mergers and acquisitions at Morgan Stanley. I did everything I could do to try to get this board to come to the right conclusion. And I think just because of the dynamics of the way board meetings work and the way groups of people get together, they were unable to get to the right answer because of one very aggressive board member who was absolutely convinced they were right. And the only issue was that that board member was completely wrong. Okay, so let's set the stage here. Rob's job is to help his clients make wise financial decisions. And now he was on the phone with a board of directors, one of whom wanted to do something reckless, something that was clearly going to cost the company tons of money in the long run. And I basically laid it out and said, look, with all due respect, this is what we do for a living. You know, we spoke to all of our capital markets people, all of our trading people, and uh, and this is going to be very poorly received. And yet, why was Rob the only one willing to speak out? This is one of those cases where there was a right answer and a wrong answer, and this director was just absolutely wrong. Uh, having said that, uh, the board went along, uh, ignored our advice. I'm absolutely sure, because we had subsequent board meetings, that uh, the board recognized that they had made a, a very bad mistake. So to recap, there was only one board member who was expressing a strong opinion. Rob explained why that opinion was flawed, and yet none of the other board members spoke up. Why is it hard to sway other directors who should be thinking rationally? People by, by nature in groups are less confrontational. There's no doubt that deals are driven by personalities, egos. That's just the way it is and the way it's always been. The methods people use to make choices in the business world aren't rational. It isn't science. Even if the numbers don't hold up, every day people make decisions for all sorts of reasons, emotional, psychological. Sometimes it's as simple as not wanting to deal with a fellow board member who won't be quiet. The nuance of our behaviours and our ability to assess risk touches almost everything we try to achieve together. But it doesn't have to be a mystery. There's a whole subfield of economics in which people study why we do what we do in business. It's called behavioural economics, and that's the topic for our deep dive today. Coming up, you'll hear an in-depth interview all about behavioural economics. We brought in Professor Elizabeth Webb, an assistant professor at Columbia's Graduate School of Business. We begin the conversation with some definitions. I've always found this really fun aspect of economics because it has to do with humans and human behavior. But can you explain to people who maybe aren't familiar with the term, what does it mean? I always explain it as almost this melding of psychology and economics because economics makes certain assumptions about rationality and how people make decisions that ultimately prove to be systematically and predictably false. So behavioral economics really focuses on those systematic errors that people make. So it's not just about showing these neat little tricks of psychology, but really showing 
and building up a new model of human behavior where you can actually account for these errors and these biases that everyone tends to make and then have a new model that does better at describing real behavior. Behavioral economics is sort of migrated from academia to <laughs> the corporate world. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, what's going on there? Behavioral economics has become a discipline that is very important to business and industry. And we've seen more and more Fortune 500 companies actually create positions for people to use behavioral research in the company. So we see companies create like chief behavioral officer positions that are solely created so that people can use research and findings from behavioral economics to give firms a competitive advantage. And we also see firms using this a lot in terms of how they manage their employees. And some of it is so simple to implement and can actually have a very large impact that I think that's also what's very exciting about it. There are these little things that you can do to help people make better decisions to help improve sort of the composition of your teams within a company and create these environments that are more conducive to better decision making, which ultimately will lead to better outcomes at every level of the firm. And what about behavioral economics in the the sort of financial world? I mean, were you surprised when you heard that financial managers were were implementing it? <laughs> I'm I'm not going to lie, I was a little surprised. I know that it's an area that could benefit a lot from behavioral economics, both in terms of how managers approach financial risk and approach investment, but also how a company could institute new policies to increase better risk-taking over more reckless risk-taking, but then also to improve cohesiveness in their teams and sort of get to better outcomes that way. Um, So I think of financial institutions as institutions that are very closely married to traditional economics paradigms or traditional financial economics paradigms. And so to hear about companies considering behavioral economics or trying to look at how to implement that theory, I think is very exciting because it shows sort of just how far some of this research has traveled in that sense. You said you were surprised because of the the traditional approach to economics, but how could it work? Have you seen Right. So we see a lot of irregularities in the stock market in terms of how people invest that economic theory wouldn't really have a prediction for, but behavioral economics would. So explaining things like why people trade so frequently, why we see people hold on to stocks that are losing money but sell stocks that are gaining in in value, why we see people not invest in retirement as much as they should, why we don't see people saving as much as they should, why we tend to not see a very strong serial correlation in any individual investor's performance over time. From an outside perspective, there's also sort of this strong cultural idea that People in these institutions are experts, and they do have a lot of experience and expertise, but that expertise isn't always correlated with financial performance. And overcoming that idea that you're an expert who can predict things that have a lot of randomness and a lot of error in them is, I would say, a very difficult sort of norm or belief to accept or overcome and then try to work or improve on. There's research showing that people prefer stocks that have ticker symbols that are actually 
pronounceable, where you can pronounce the actual ticker, people will prefer those stocks over stocks that don't have that type of ticker, right? And that's just sort of this unconscious bias that happens. Because it's more human, it speaks to them more as something that makes sense? No, so it all comes down to just we always try to be as, if we put a positive spin on this, as efficient as possible with our thinking. And what this ticker symbol thing comes down to is solely cognitive ease. So it's easier for us to process those symbols because we can actually think of them as real words. They're easier to remember. And that feeling of familiarity tricks us into thinking that there's a reason we have that feeling and there's a reason why we should choose that stock or choose this company where that could be driven solely by some sort of unconscious exposure that you had before and not by having some sort of premonition that this company is going to be the next up-and-coming hit company or that this stock is going to do better than any other stock. it's We're really just being led astray by how we construct our memories and how we retrieve information, how we process information. How could a financial manager use behavioral economics to, say, improve their team's performance? In terms of improving a team's performance, there are a couple things that I always think could go a very long way. And one of those is how we evaluate people's performance, especially when you're talking about something where there is inherent variance and risk. People should probably be rewarded based on their decision making in the moment versus the outcome. So if you only reward people based on the outcome of their decisions, you're not necessarily rewarding good decision making. You're rewarding potentially someone who is capitalizing on error or just had very good luck or on the other side of that, punishing people who happen to have bad luck or hit the other side of that sort of error term. If instead you focus on process, how people are deciding, I think that can go a long way in terms of improving actual decision making. So if we rewarded them based on making the best decision with what they knew at that time, I think that could improve a team's performance and the company's return overall in the long run. So what pitfalls could a manager fall into when it comes to decision making? There are a lot, but one that is particularly important but also easy to kind of address would be related to sort of groupthink and confirmation biases. So as soon as a manager as the leader of the team sort of tips his or her hat in terms of what they would like to do or what approach they would like to take, you will see individual team members conforming to that plan or converging on that idea rather than expressing opinions or ideas that would contradict that or or sort of suggest that wasn't the best approach. Because again, um, if people sort of express those opinions that aren't aligned with the leader, that can be seen as dissenting or disloyal. And often people get punished for expressing those types of views rather than just falling into line. And sometimes this happens even just at a non-conscious level where once you know what the leader wants to do, people obviously put a lot of stock in the leader and respect them and they want to be seen as supporting them and thus they'll kind of fall in line with that idea already. Um, Beyond that, what happens is once an idea or a plan is expressed, any sort of new information or data that comes in will be viewed through this lens that sort of confirms that approach or confirms that plan and that's called the confirmation bias. And we do it all the time where basically once we have an opinion or once we've decided what we're going to do or what approach we're going to take, we see all incoming evidence, all new data that we approach as supporting that 
viewpoint. So that's a bias that we fall victim to all the time, but can be sort of magnified in the context of a team where everyone's sort of where everyone's trying to support the leader and fall in line with what the leader wants to do, and then also further seeing any new data or evidence as supporting what's already been decided. So can behavioral economics, I mean, can that indirectly help you to maintain intellectual independence, even if you are in a group with everyone else who looks like you? Yeah, so I think that, I mean, it absolutely can. And and what it comes down to is, this is what I... I always say to like MBA students, which I think is the hardest thing for people to accept and not because anyone is a bad person, but because our focus and our narrative is all around ourselves. And when we learn about these biases, what we tend to think then is, well, I know about it, so I don't have to worry about it now because I'm aware. But so many of these things occur at this sort of non-conscious level that awareness is not enough. So what behavioral economics can do is actually help you create commitment devices that can improve group decision-making or improve individual-level decision-making by sort of being very vigilant in terms of imposing these rules or commitment devices on yourself. So when we're talking about groups making a decision, a really simple way to kind of increase independence of thought or maintain that independence would be to have people anonymously contribute ideas to a group. So have people write down ideas on a piece of paper, not go around a room and brainstorm because then people will just kind of conform to the decisions that are being expressed. Um, another exercise that's been really successful for people is doing things called doing something called a pre-mortem, where you're you could be brainstorming or strategizing and then you set aside time to specifically talk about why your idea or why this approach will fail. So imagine that you took this approach or you followed this strategy and it failed and it went horribly. Why did that happen? And then people go around expressing why they think that would happen. So they're forced to creatively think about ways in which the project could fail. And so it kind of unleashes this channel for people to express criticism or doubt, but in a positive and creative way. And then that can actually improve decision making as a whole, because once you're forced to think of how will this fail or how will this die, it can force you to think of things that you weren't thinking about when you're just focusing on the best case scenario or how something's going to succeed, which is obviously how we approach projects and decisions. We're never thinking like, what's the worst way to do this? We're like, what's the best way? And that inherently involves best case scenarios. It's anchored on our plans and our impressions and this idea of everything working out. When in reality, there's way more avenues for things to go wrong than there are for things to go right all along the way. Right. Yeah, and, and and thinking that way is almost sort of against the American way of business mm-hmm. and, 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 and the optimism that's in sort of baked into American life. I mean, optimism is oh, – it's not good for decision-making. I'm. It's really good for your mental health and <laughs> being resilient and uh, persisting in the face of adversity. But in terms of decision-making, optimism has never been shown to be a good thing. It's been shown to be pretty much a bad thing. It will lead you to grossly underestimate how long something will take to complete. I mean, that's something everyone falls victim to. Like, I will get this done in two hours, and then seven hours later, you're still working on it and scrambling to get it done. Those types of optimistic forecasts are something we all fall victim to and is is really bad when you're talking about 
a business and making decisions in terms of a team and trying to pursue a project, that type of optimism every step of the way will come will come up and kind of lead you astray from probably what's really going to happen. Mm. New <laughs> techniques to use in yeah. one's work life. Don't be an optimist. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Morgan Stanley Ideas podcast. If you'd like to learn more about the research discussed in this podcast and listen to previous episodes, you can check out morganstanley.com slash ideas or Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts. I'm Ashley Montite. Till next time.